Hey, it's Simon, and welcome to episode 34 of Turning the Tables, the first of a three-part mini-series on mental health, with my guest, Adam Rubin. How is it that a chance event in someone's childhood can set up a chain reaction that ultimately leads to a lifetime of battling depression? So I was crying in my bedroom every single day. Um, I was unable to talk to friends or family. And I think at some point, my parents intervened because they could see something was drastically wrong. And I went to see a doctor and she said that I had a, a form of depression. But at the age of 12, I was, I was beaten up, um, actually in my, my local synagogue, the result of which sent me into a deep history of depression, of a lack of self-worth, of having very little to no confidence, and actually for good two or three years, even being very scared to leave the house. Despite this childhood trauma, Adam Rubin has operated at a high level of performance and success. In the high-octane, high-stress entertainment and advertising industries, Adam's career spanned working as the marketing director of the Walt Disney Company and CEO of a successful advertising agency, Way to Blue. Now committed to the cause of promoting mental health and well-being in the workplace, Adam's story is a brutally honest and revealing insight into the challenges faced by many people in their working lives. In this episode, Adam talks about the particular pressures of expectation that contributed to his depression and burnout, his advice to people who are struggling with mental health issues, and his call on businesses to challenge the notion that shareholder value and employee well-being are at odds. Having spent much of my career in advertising and suffered from depression myself, this is a subject dear to my heart. Before we jump into our conversation, I'd like to shout out to the Alliance of Independent Agencies, who are partnering with Turning the Tables on this mini-series. The Alliance are an organisation that take the mental health and well-being of people in agencies seriously. Their Wellbeing Action Group promotes the importance of creating safe environments and building people's resilience. They even have an annual Festival of Happiness, as well as promoting training for mental first aid champions. How good is that? This is the kind of support and agenda that every industry and community needs. I would particularly like to thank Graham Kemp and Clive Mission and everyone at the Alliance for supporting this mini-series. Back to the podcast. I started my conversation with Adam talking about the pressures of the business he worked in and the circumstances that led to his mental health challenges. Of course, you've spent a, a career in the communications world and I suppose if you take that as a sort of industry, it's, I mean, obviously I know from my own experience, it is a high stress industry with lots of bright people in it and lots of achievers and it puts stresses on the system, doesn't it? But just tell us a bit about your your career journey. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting as you as you say that. I sort of realised that I've worked in both entertainment and marketing communications to extraordinarily um, uh, high stress environments. Because you're at Disney, and I wonder. You? I was I was at Disney for ten years. Yeah. Uh, and I do wonder if there is any sort of self sabotage or self destruct in there. Um, in that sort of I'm actively putting myself in stressful situations, whether it be consciously or, or, or subconsciously. But my journey goes back to the age of 12. Um, I was a very, very happy child, very ambitious, and I sort of innately knew that I was going to be something. I was going to do something. I didn't know what, but I was confident that I had something different. And I celebrated that, that difference at that time. But at the age of 12, I was, I was beaten up, um, actually in my, my local synagogue. So in an environment where you would feel safe, you would feel a degree of trust. I, I was, you know, hurt by a, a group of individuals that have broken into the synagogue and, and, and started taking it out on, uh, anyone in their sights. The result of which sent me into a deep history of depression, of a lack of self-worth, of having very little to no confidence, and actually for a good two or three years, even being very scared to leave the house. Uh, something I kind of went through on my own because I was unable really to communicate effectively at that age, and I felt uh, fearful of, of, of talking to my my parents about it, who I worshipped and, and, and still do. And so I went through a, a real physiological and psychological shift at an age where your brain is developing at a very quick rate. And I think the combination of those two things meant that I was spiralling into a deep depression without really having any of the tools to be able to deal with it. It got so bad at, at, at one point that my my parents did intervene and they they sought out some some help and some treatment. But I didn't really get along with it. I didn't really understand what was going on. And I again, because I was so poor at, at communicating and articulating what was happening, I couldn't quite get to the bottom of it to to deal with it. Um, and that only really happened in later life. I was going to say, I mean, uh, how was that manifested f for you? How did you realise at that point that something wasn't right and, and did you actually get diagnosed? How did all that happen? I can only describe it as out-of-body experiences. I, I, I've never really quite been able to describe what it was or what it felt like, but... It was not something I could control. It was something that made me extraordinarily sad. And um, quite honestly, I, I, it, you know, everything felt very futile. So I was crying in my bedroom every single day. Um, I was unable to talk to friends or family. And I think at some point, my parents intervened because they could see something was drastically wrong. And I went to see a doctor and she said that I had, I think in the first instance, they said I had chronic fatigue syndrome because mm. I was, I had, uh, there was a lack of energy. 
but then they sort of um, said that I had a, a, a form of depression. So as a child, you, you sort of try everything. You do therapy. They talk to you in a language you can't understand. You try hypnotherapy. And, uh, you know, that all feels very sort of short-termist in terms of the impact it has on you. But nothing was really getting to the root of the issue because I didn't really understand the root of the issue. And then I sort of put the whole thing to bed when I went to university. I, I saw it as a fresh start, as a new, a new me. And I was, in a sense, proud of myself that I'd managed to get myself to university because my, my school education was a write-off because I just couldn't concentrate. I couldn't focus. I didn't feel well. And I had a, an inner resilience and determination that kind of got me to university. I actually didn't get in, but I drove up to Manchester and talked my way onto the course because I was desperate to get away and do something like that. And... Um, I sort of put it away uh, mentally, um, and it didn't help that the age, at age 19, I was again the victim of another um, group beating um, in the streets of Manchester, where six guys uh, came up to me in, in, in the uh, uh, late at night and um, saw I was wearing a Star of David and proceeded to tell me what, what, what they thought of me, and then uh, and then did so with their fists. So that didn't help. But again, I, I sort of put it away and I got on with it. And um, I ended up getting a job at the Walt Disney Company. A dream job. I mean, an absolute dream job working in the film industry, which was my my passion and my, uh, my love. And when I went there, I sort of said to myself, I'm going to work every hour under the sun to justify them hiring me because I know that if I don't do that, there'll be a thousand people behind me who will be after after this job. So I, I threw myself into that role, and sadly, I think I set a precedent for myself in that I think once you start doing that, people start to perceive you as the guy that will put his hand up to anything, the guy that will you know we can delegate to him because he'll do it. Um, and I ended up taking on too much. And I think in my eighth year of working at Disney, where I sort of worked myself up the, up the ladder, I got to a point where I think physically and mentally the strain was too much and it all caught up with me and I, I collapsed. And I was in a, a hotel room in Madrid, I think three or four in the morning, working on a presentation, bottle of whiskey by my side. And I, the next thing, I, I woke up on the floor. I couldn't move. I, fortunately, my phone was uh, uh, right by my hand, and I uh, had a colleague of mine on speed dial, and I called her. And they, she called the hotel. They, they came into my room, and next thing I know, I'm on a plane back to London and uh, checked into the Priory Hospital. You need someone to take control, don't you, to sort of give you the hope that they can make you better. And I think, I, I, remembering back at that time, I think an overriding uh, concern and fear for me was that I just felt very alone. I felt extraordinarily alone. This was at a time where, you know, perhaps mental health wasn't as as trendy as it is today, and no one spoke about it. So, 
if you felt this way and you were going through something like this, you were doing it on your own. You were not doing it with anyone else and you were not aware that anyone else had these kinds of feelings. And that in itself is probably the worst thing about it. Um, so to go to an environment where I'm surrounded by other people that are having this kind of uh, emotional experience where it can be sort of a shared environment was to a degree quite compelling. Sadly, you become almost addicted to that and you become institutionalized very quickly. You're exposed to a number of things that in your regular life, you, you just, you could never, ever anticipate. Um, from a friend of mine breaking into my room and using my razor to self-harm, to losing a couple of friends to, to suicide, um, to having um, uh, 16 forms of uh, uh, electroconvulsive treatment which I believe is now no longer supported um, and being put on medication that, you know, is not good for the mind or the body. So you are, you're drowned out of having emotions in an environment which is highly emotive. And it's, it's, it's a very strange experience and you become very scared of the outside world. So I was conscious of that. I spent, I think, a good eight months there as, a, as an inpatient. Really? That, that's that's a, a long period of time, isn't it? It was a long period of time. And thankfully, my colleagues at Disney supported me. I'll be forever grateful to them for that. But they supported me financially. They, they, they kept my job open. And they, they, they supported me emotionally as well. So that was incredible. I eventually made it out and sort of started on a road to recovery. But so I went back to Disney. I did another another two years there, and then I I decided that um, there was more to life than this sort of this corporate thing, and that actually it wasn't helping me um, become the kind of human being I wanted to to become. I was working very hard for an organization that was the people gave back to me. I didn't feel like the organization did. So I, I decided to leave and go traveling and I went traveling for a year to sort of try to regain some sort of perspective. Do you, I was going to ask you, sorry to interrupt, but, uh, during that period of sort of reflection, were you able to identify any of the contributing factors as to why you'd had that depression? What was dry, what had driven that? I think at that point I had seen enough therapists um, to know that the roots of the issue were kind of the impact of what had happened to me aged 12. But I hadn't, I hadn't dealt with it. I still hadn't dealt with it. Um, I was older. I think my, my, my brain had developed more and I had more tools to be able to cope with certain triggers. But I hadn't dealt with the root cause. And that only happened, again, later in life. But I'm at this point in my 30s 
I still haven't dealt with an issue I've had since I was 12 years old. I've played effectively a character for an extraordinarily long time. I have lied to myself. I have lied to my friends and family because I'm not being authentically me. I'm not telling people what I'm going through or what I'm experiencing. And, you know, to, to look back at that age and think it's been 18 years now and I don't think I've had a good run at happiness. I don't think I've had a good run at being myself. You kind of live life feeling regretful. Mm. You kind of feel like you've lost a lot of time and that you're not sure you're ever going to be able to make it up. What was the character you, you were playing? Honestly, and this is where we go into therapy, the character I was playing was my father. Of course, he, he'd been a, he's a very successful businessman in his own right. So my, my father was the, the chief exec of Bates Dorlands and Mark yeah. Dorlands and um, yeah. uh, McCann Erickson as well. And um, But I, I idolised my father, and I still do, but I would say back then it was unhealthy. Uh, I put them on a some sort of mythological platform, and I I I just wanted to be like him. I wanted to be someone that could earn respect and you know be a phenomenal business operator uh, and rise to the top of the tree through hard work and diligence and and all that sort of thing. And that's the the role. I tried to play. So that must have put huge expectation on yourself, didn't oh, it, presumably? I cannot even tell you. And the worst thing is, any time I, I, hit, I hit a bar, you know, I want to be promoted to X or I want to earn Y, any time I, I, I achieved something like that, I just created a new unreachable bar. And so you're putting a huge amount of expectation on, upon yourself you're playing a character you're not equipped to play. I don't have his his background. I didn't grow up during the war. I didn't have his resilience, you know. Um, he is, he's his own person. Um, and as brilliant as he is, I'm a completely different person. But I didn't really understand what role I could play. I didn't, I didn't have a role because I, just, I couldn't connect to myself. So I, it took me a long time to work out that I was playing the role of someone else and that I was putting expectations upon myself that were impossible to reach. And that in turn makes you more anxious, makes you more depressed because you're just never ever happy or comfortable or confident with who you are. So I think the traveling helped. The traveling put a lot of things into perspective for me. I got to see things in life that I had never seen before growing up in a, you know, middle-class white household in, you know, Northwest London. And I got to see what real life looks like and what kindness looks like and what humanity looks like. And that really helped me. It, it certainly gave me some fuel for a bit longer. And when I got back, I, you know, I probably could have gone back into the world of entertainment, back into the corporate world, but I, I felt like I needed to do something different. So I went into to agency world and I, I, I ran an agency for 14 years, which brings with it its own stresses and strains. 
And as much as I wanted not to go back to where I was, there is always, I think, within all of us, a degree of self-sabotage and self-destruct. And I think if something hasn't been fixed, your mind will force you to go back to it somehow. Perhaps through self-sabotage, it will do it unconsciously. It will send you there. It's a sort of habitual pattern, isn't it, that the brain takes you back to. It's almost like even if it's destructive, it's somehow or other the, the brain is happier repeating previous patterns than changing them, isn't it? I'd like to think it's because it wants you to go through the complete circle. I think when you have something like this, there is a there is a beginning, there is a start point, and there is an end point. And I think often when we go and get help and treatment, we start that journey, but we never truly complete it. And I'd like to think that the mind is trying to get you to a point whereby you have to complete it. And, and if it needs to sabotage you in order to do so, then that's, that's what it does. So I, running a business for me was very difficult. You know, I'm a, I'm a guy in my 30s. I'm not. I don't have the confidence to be me. So again, I'm playing a role. And when you're playing a role, I don't think people connect to you necessarily in the way you want them to. I'm a people pleaser. So I want people to like me. I don't think people were liking me in a way that I wanted them to. I would help a lot of people along the way. I didn't feel like they were helping me back. I realize now that's because I wouldn't let them. Yeah, you must have been a, you must have been operating at a high high level to give being given, if you like, the position to play the role. Uh, well, I have to tell you, I'm very good at playing it. Hmm. I am very good. I'm still to this day very good at playing it. Although that role and me have converged, <laughs> so it's now one and the same. So I've added in a bit of me, and I've added my personal values into it to create me and, and and so it is part of me now but when when i didn't have the tools to be able to do that i was very good at playing the role very good i could play that role um and win an oscar for it but it wasn't the reality it wasn't how i felt inside what you get out of this kind of adversity the output is a superpower and that superpower is extreme heightened self-awareness mm. and the ability to project that onto other people mm. and look through their soul and see whether they are being their authentic selves or whether they are in some way projecting or mimicking or, or, or have bad learned behaviors and are applying those onto you. And that is a, a, a wonderful, wonderful gift. It really is. It's just a shame that everybody has to go through what they have to go through to get there. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a really good point. You know, if someone said to me, would you go through that again in order to earn this superpower? I'd say a million times no. I'd happily be blissfully ignorant. <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's, it's not worth the pain. No. It really is. I mean, it's, it's a great gift that you get out of it. So if anyone is going through this kind of thing and can't see any of the benefits the benefits come once you've been once you've achieved the circle and i would never ever wish that 
upon anyone. And it's why I think anyone that has had that is deeply connected to the well-being space, the mental health space, that wants to do things like this, to have the courage to go out there and say, this happened to me and it's perfectly normal, uh, but there is a way through it. And it's essential. And that's the only reason I'm doing this, uh, Simon, to be honest with you, because I, I'm not good at articulating this stuff. I never have been, and I don't particularly enjoy going back there. But if it helps one person, it's worthwhile. If one person hears something like this and says, it's okay, we can, we can get through it, it's worthwhile. And that's why I think more people should come out and start talking about their story in an open and authentic way in order to give those that are going through it some degree of hope that they can complete that circle and come out of it with that superpower. Uh, absolutely. And, and you've, na- you've nailed why this podcast exists for exactly that reason. And, and, you know, mental health is obviously one of the big issues that faces people. But of course, there are many others like disability and uh, diversity and, and a lot of other things where people suffer and find a way through it. And often they can find positive outcome, fulfilment. So it's a message of hope to people, really, isn't it? I'm just wondering, reflecting back, what would you say to your, to that boy of 13, 14 now, based on what you've learnt? Well, I, uh, this is something that you do as part of your therapy. I've actually done it twice, so perhaps it wasn't as effective the first time around. But <laughs> You've rehearsed it. <laughs> I have rehearsed. Well, yeah. Um, so you 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 do have to go back and talk to that person because that person still lives lives on inside you, and that person's development and growth has been stunted by these circumstances and what's happened and that person did not feel protected, did not feel safe. And, and that's the fundamental issue that created this, this um, pathway towards, you know, a depression. So the thing you tell that child is you tell them that they are safe, they are protected, and that they're valued, um, and that they're loved. And if you do that, and if you really connect with that, it can make a huge difference. You have to, to a degree, accept what has happened, what you've learned, and you have to use, use it for the, for the good that's come out of it and disregard, as best you can, the bad. Because you do move on, and you, you move on with this gift but it's not just you moving on. It's every fabric of you. It's that child inside you. It's, it's that ability to connect with your, your spiritual self. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's a, that's a long-winded way of saying you sort of tell that child that they're, they're safe. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So now, how do you manage yourself to manage, you know, your well-being and your mental health? How do you now operate to avoid that happening again? Well, going back to my journey, when I was running my communications business, I worked myself towards a, a burnout. 
So I had really my second burnout. And that was effectively the output of what, which was daily panic attacks, daily anxiety, a lot of physical health issues and autoimmune problems. And my, I think my body and my mind were trying to tell me for an awful long time that what I was doing was not working, but I wasn't listening. What I've learned is that you have to listen to your body and you have to listen to your mind. And if they're knocking on the door and telling you there's a problem, the longer you leave it in terms of listening, the worse the outcome will be. So the burnout that I experienced the second time was a different kind of burnout to the one that I had the first time around, but it was equally damaging. And, uh, you know, at one point I almost lost a leg because I hadn't been listening to my body. So, you know, that goes to show you that it, it, it did get out of control. And so I, I decided that now is the time in my mid-40s to deal with this once and for all. And, and, and that's what I did. I went through a process and, and, and really dealt with a lot of the root causes. And what I've learned in that time is to your point, how to deal with this on an ongoing basis. It's not to say that I now feel absolutely perfect and happy every day. There are triggers everywhere, all around me. And some people choose to escape those triggers and run away, move to another country and try to quieten the noise. I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm open to these triggers, but I'm aware of them. I, I, I'm absolutely aware. And so, I now try and create a world whereby I can deal with these triggers. I have a support group around me. I'm aware of what's happening. And I practice daily things like gratitude and meditation and kindness, the things that, like I say, nourish the soul and also help other people. So it's a win-win in my view. And I don't think anyone should be ashamed that helping other people also has a, a selfish part to it as well. It helps you. There's no shame in that as long as you're helping other people. That's very. I think that's very powerful what you're, you're saying there, and it shows that the wisdom of going through, obviously, what you, you've been through. I, I wonder now, again, given your knowledge and your experiences, particularly in the, let's call it the communications business, what would you say to anybody working in that industry in terms of helping them to maintain a good, a good sense of well-being as they go through their career? What I've always tried to do is encourage people around me to, to be their authentic selves, to speak openly without fear of judgment, and to understand that we're all uh, a work in progress. There is no perfection. There is no complete human being that we're all going through a mental journey and that no one knows all the answers. A lot of people are very convincing in terms of making you think they know the answers, but no one does, whether that's our government, uh, our, you know, people in authority, your bosses, no one knows the answers. And 
we have to embrace fallibility. We have to embrace vulnerability. And we have to have the courage to be able to speak openly and honestly and transparently. And that applies to any human being, whether you're a leader of a business or whether you uh, work in a business, you should be able to have the freedom to be able to talk about these things openly with people you trust. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a very that's a powerful manifesto, if you like, isn't it, for the way businesses should operate. I mean, I, I wonder whether in order for this to really work, there has to be a step change in the way that businesses think about what it is they're on this earth for because it strikes me that what that whenever businesses have to be driven by shareholder value those equations always put a great tension on the well-being of employees it's sort of inevitable inevitable equation yeah, but I, I think we live in a world full of dichotomies you know um authenticity is a great one you know where we demand authenticity from people yet the moment they're open and honest we knock them down we criticize them for it and it's the same thing with business you know the dichotomy there is why can't good business practice coexist with mental wellness within the business i believe that some boardrooms view wellness as an hr tick box exercise and it is not elevated to boardroom conversation or if and if it is it's purely a status where are we with the numbers bit like used um, to be with csr <laughs> yeah well and, and and the same with diversity and inclusion yeah, if i'm honest i'm absolutely. involved with diversity and inclusion and it's the same thing we a lot of the time in the world of mental well-being and diversity and um, sustainability and purpose. We preach to the converted. We only talk to the audience that wants to listen and is open to listening. But we don't talk to the audience that needs to hear it the most because we're scared to, because we know they don't believe and it's hard to change someone's opinion. And that there is something wrong in the world of debate today, whether it's political debate or, or, or debate on these kinds of issues. People tend to have extremist views they are for something or they're against something. The, the lines in the middle don't exist. The gray doesn't exist. And we have to start having conversations with people that don't want to listen, not with the people that do want to listen. Otherwise, we're never going to move the needle. So how do we elevate these conversations to the boardroom? How do we make it as important as the margins? It's not one or the other. You can still run a very efficient, effective business and uh, advocate wellness within the business it's not one or the other so what would you say to somebody who was facing adversity based on your experience what sort of encouragement or insight would you give them well, the first thing i would do is i would listen um i think in the world of communication the most important thing is to listen not to talk and i i think as human beings, I think we've lost that to a degree. Uh, I think we're, we're more interested in what we have to say than what other people have to say. So I think the first thing, if anyone came to me and said they had a problem, I would spend a lot of time listening to them. Then I would empathize. 
then I would work with them on a on a, on a on a way out. Um, and there is a way out, but it takes commitment. It takes investment. And like anything in life, if we're willing to invest in going to a gym, or we're willing to invest in buying material things or whatever it might be, we have to be willing to invest in our own mental wellness. Yes, uh, absolutely agree. So bring us up to, to today. You've mentioned a little bit about what you what you're doing, but tell us tell us more. Yeah, so I've I've set up my own consultancy business to work with independent agencies and SMEs to help them grow, scale, and exit, but with a huge component and lens around well-being, whether that's working with businesses to help incorporate well-being initiatives or whether it's working with individuals um, like leaders to mentor them through anxiety and burnout. I, I want to have a holistic approach to this because I think a lot of consultants are very metric focused and they don't focus on the most important component any business has, which is people. And we're all human, we're all fallible, and leaders in businesses are the least likely to tell you that they are fallible and that they are struggling or that you know something they've done was wrong. They're the least likely to tell you that. But I would like to be the person that they can talk to when they're going through something like that so that they can be their authentic selves and they can be in touch with their own personal and professional values and not compromise those on a daily basis. Because I, I believe compromising your personal values is what will put you on a short, sharp journey towards burnout and anxiety. Absolutely. There's something called the Mickle therapy, which actually um, has identified that is exactly an issue for, for people who uh, suffer burnout. The theory, basically, um, and it does relate to people who've had depression or chronic fatigue or any of those autoimmune conditions, is that the biggest contributor to that is where you've, where your boundaries have been broken, but you've suppressed the the sort of recognition of that. You've basically put up with it. So whether that's in work or whether it's in relationships or whatever else it is, you've gone outside of what your true values are, but you felt you've had to do that and therefore you've suppressed your real identity and your real values. That's, re that's really interesting. I mean, I, I sort of define burnout as when an energy deficiency collides with a compromise of your personal or professional values. It's, it, it, and it's, there's something about an inner crisis, which people don't tell you is, is, is a gift. I mean, someone once said to me, I think I said to them, I, I feel like I'm having a breakdown. And they said, a breakdown is a breakthrough. And of course, when you hear that, you sort of think, oh, what a load of tosh. You know, <laughs> Easy for you to say. <laughs> now I've been, uh, been out the other side of it. I can see where they're coming from. I, I, I think... A lot of people have to go through extreme adversity before they can come out the other side and experience this this gift. I think that, I think that's very true. I mean, in the industry, in the world of business, there's a lot of talk about mental health. How, how do we turn that that health into genuine action? 
and genuine belief in it as a, as a, an important issue. Well, like I say, the conversation right now is surface. It's relatively trendy. It's relatively fashionable. Um, I think, you know, there's, um, on Mental Health Awareness Day, you start hearing from all manner of people, and then you never hear from them again. It, it's all surface right now. And whilst there are some p- incredible people in this world doing some really, truly innovative and great things for business and beyond, I don't think their voices are being heard as much as they should be, simply because we still have very old-fashioned traditional leaders of business that are so heavily margin-focused that they cannot and do not want to engage with this type of conversation. So until we start elevating it into the boardrooms, um, until we start investing in it and and, and start seeing a a positive return, both in terms of people's uh, an improvement in health, but also an improvement in in, uh, business productivity, I am struggling to see how we're going to move to the next stage. But I think anything like this, you know, your podcast, any stage where people can get up and start talking about it is only going to help raise further awareness and allow people to engage with it more and, you know, start to fix this ridiculously archaic stigma that comes along with mental health issues. Um, and it's the fundamental reason why people won't out themselves as someone that has a perfectly normal uh, mental health issue. You know, this is normal. This is not um, abnormal. This is normal. And I, I think people need to hear that message. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very, very powerful. And I totally, totally agree with that. Well, that's been a really fantastic and interesting um, discussion Adam thank you so much for doing it and really thank you for being so open uh, I, I really do hope as as you've said that this provides some insight for people and as you say if only one person feels able to talk about issues they're struggling with then, then it's been a success uh, absolutely and thank you for having me I, I really appreciate it you know you I don't think people would do this unless you made them feel safe enough to do so so I appreciate you hearing my story. I appreciate you doing what you're doing because I do think it will make a big difference. And all of your details will be in the show notes so people will be able to make those contacts. Great. Fantastic. There is no doubt that mental health is one of the significant challenges of our time. Adam's searingly honest and open conversation is a tribute to his commitment to promoting the well-being agenda. As Adam said, the little child in all of us needs to be protected and loved. The question is, how do we as individuals balance achievement and business performance with our mental health? This is the conversation I think we all must continue to have. You can reach out to Adam at his consultancy, The Ark, or on LinkedIn. Links are in the show notes. I hope this series will bring some light to the darkness for anyone listening with mental health challenges. 
you are not alone. In episode 35 of Turning the Tables, the second in our mini-series, I talked to Dr Liz Miller, a physician, surgeon, campaigner and writer, noted for her outspoken mental health views and someone who has lived with bipolar disorder for much of her life. In 2008, Liz was voted Mind Champion of the Year by Public Poll. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review. And be sure to subscribe to Turning the Tables on your favourite podcast channel to make sure you catch the next episode in this series. Until next time, go safely.